Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. This is uh, likely not one of those texts that you would turn to when you think about Christmas. I know if I were to ask any one of you and say, uh, what text comes to your mind when you think about Christmas? This would not be one of them. <laughs> but I will tell you, the message of it is the heart And I mean this. It is the heart of this holiday season. And that's why I've entitled this sermon, The Heart of Christmas. I want you to follow along as I read verses 20 to 28 of Matthew 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by the Father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whosoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Here Jesus was on his final trip to Jerusalem. He was within days, and I mean days, of his crucifixion. And that is why he told his disciples what he did there in verses 17 to 19 that introduces this whole text. It says, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. He wanted them to be prepared for what lied ahead. Well, this seemed to slip by them as James and John had other things on their mind. Selfish matters recorded in the next couple of verses that we just read. Their desire was to sit on the right and left hand of Jesus in his kingdom. That's what verse 21 tells us. Now it's possible that they had been thinking about this since Jesus told the disciples they would be sitting with him on 12 thrones Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, go back with me to Matthew 19, verses 27 and 28, where we see that very thing. The 
Simon Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. You also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And you know, to get some leverage, so to speak, in all of this, they brought their mother with them to request on their behalf. Yep, they brought mom along. There seems to be some indication that their mother was the sister of Jesus' mother. All right. So there's some family politics going on. All right. We can identify with this because to get where we want sometimes, what do we do? We use relationships that we know to get what we want. That's exactly what's happening here. They're using their mother to get some leverage with Jesus. Well, in verse 22, Jesus quickly responded to them by saying, you don't know what you are asking. Because the way to glory was through the road of suffering. That's right. That is why he asked them if they were able to drink the cup that he was about to partake. Again, going back to verses 18 and 19. Well, because of their self-confidence and maybe not realizing the implications, they said, we are able. And you know, Jesus was very gracious here. He even affirmed their commitment there in verse 23, as both of them years later would suffer, would they not? I mean, who's going to be the first martyr in the church? James. Yeah. And then later, John is going to go to the Isle of Patmos. So yes, they are going to suffer. But he also told them that the position they desired was not his to give but was determined by the Father's sovereign choice. Besides, their aspirations were sinful, were they not? You bet. Because the kingdom is not about personal ambition. Now, as you can see there in verse 24, what happened with the rest of the disciples? (laughs) They were indignant with the other brothers. Why? Because they had those same aspirations. That's why they were upset. That's why they were mad. It's embedded in pride. And this set the stage for the instruction Jesus gave his disciples there in verses 25 to 28. He went on to discuss the key, the key to true greatness. And by the way, he had talked with them about this before. Did you know that? Go back with me to chapter 18 and verse 1. Chapter 18 and verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then he went on to discuss some things with those men. So he had already discussed this matter with them. And now he's doing it. Again, And oh, he's going to do it once more about a week later at their supper together before his crucifixion. That's right. The only one to record this 
is Luke. He does this in Luke 22, verses 24 to 27. This was a real issue for the disciples. Because of their pride and hardness of heart, they weren't receiving these important words of Jesus. And you know, beloved, this message for the Master is just as necessary for us today as it was for them. Maybe even more so. Pride, self-esteem, selfish ambition abounds and creeps into churches. I mean, we can go out in the world and we see all those things. And sometimes, without us realizing it, we think that's the norm. And so it creeps into our lives and we bring it into the church. And God is opposed to this. If there is a time to receive Christ's message that he states right here, it's now. Because why? This is the heart of Christmas. This is the heart of Christmas. And so I want you to consider with me two simple principles. Two simple principles Jesus shared for true greatness. And I pray that you will embrace and live by them for his glory. You know, it wasn't too long ago that we talked about this matter of pride, didn't we? Yeah, when we walked through Obadiah. And now we're coming back to it again as we prepare for Christmas. And so I pray this morning that you'll just embrace what you hear for the glory of God. And the first principle is there in verse 25 and also in the first part of verse 26. Notice what it says. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. We'll stop right there. So what do you notice? What's the principle for true greatness? It's this. Greatness does not come through ruling others. That's the first principle. Greatness does not come through ruling others. Jesus used two synonymous words there in verse 25 to capture this matter. Both Greek words are intensified by a preposition carrying the idea of ruling down upon people and thus wielding power, having dominion. And by the way, these are not complementary terms because they come with oppression. Sort of a dictatorship, a tyranny that Jesus was getting at here. The disciples here knew all well the harsh leadership of the day, right? In the Roman government. And Jesus here is referencing it to help these men understand a clear picture that greatness is not about that kind of authority. Having power and prestige may characterize greatness as far as the world is concerned, but not in God's economy. That's because, as I said before, it's embedded in pride. Just listen to these verses from Proverbs. Good number of them. 
Proverbs 11 and verse 2. Just the first part. When pride comes, then comes dishonor. Proverbs 16 and verse 5. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Proverbs 16 in verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. That's repeated also again in Proverbs 18 in verse 12. Proverbs 29 in verse 23. Again, the first part. A man's pride will bring him low. Earlier in Proverbs, it says, These six things does the Lord hate. Seven are an abomination to him. And the very first term was a proud look or haughty eyes. A great illustration in Scripture of a power-hungry leader filled with pride found in the church is in Third John. Go with me, if you would, to Third John. I think we've looked at this text before. In seminary, I preached through 3 John. So I'm very, very familiar with this short epistle. 3 John, verses 9 and 10. John writes, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. And not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either. And he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, Do not imitate what is evil. He's referring back to diatrophies there. But what is good? And he's going to talk about the one who does good, and that's Demetrius. And so, yes, even in the church, there are power-hungry people. And that is why Peter said what he did later in his first epistle. And remember, Peter was there on that night when Jesus shares this instruction, okay? And then 30 years later, he's saying these words to men in leadership. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, just listen to this. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over all those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Yeah. In fact, one of the reasons this passage came to my mind is because this message is for myself. Yeah. I don't want to be a power-hungry person. I don't want to be filled with pride. No. You can pray for me in this way. And the very principles that we find in this text will not only help me, but help you. Along that line, David Brennan of the Daily Bread shared this account and application. Just listen. 
One of my college friends, a pastor, wrote to me about a disruption in his church. People had come to faith in Christ and membership had quadrupled. The members were active in serving the church and community. You know, when you see something like this, you almost have to say, okay, what's around the corner next? (laughs) You need to beware because Satan loves to disrupt this kind of thing. And he did, as it goes on to say here. But then one man in a leadership position began to envy the pastor's influence. He felt he deserved more power. So he began to tear down the pastor, thinking that would increase his own stature. It didn't matter to him what he was doing to God's work. He wanted power and recognition. He caused such an uproar that my friend finally had to resign. That's too bad. David Brannon goes on to say, when it comes to serving Christ, we have no right to seek power. We have no calling for prestige. We have no reason to look for self-aggrandizement and recognition. And so he says this, are you a pastor, a teacher, a deacon, a missionary, a church member? He leaves no one out. If you look for power, you may get it. But it will become power that disrupts the good work of your church ministry. You don't want that, do you? No, not at all. That's why we need this message today. Because it's the heart of Christmas. And so, beloved, may you guard against a power-hungry heart that seeks to rule over others. This is what Jesus was concerned about in James, John, and the rest of the disciples. They were each ambitious for special positions alongside Jesus. But you know, some, they did not understand the authority of it. They didn't. You see, it's about ruling according to God's will and for His glory using their position for good in helping others. Beloved, that is true greatness. And so may that be your desire this morning. Greatness does not come through ruling others. Jesus made that very clear to these men. Not just once. He's doing it again here, and he will do it again another time. That brings me next to the main principle which Jesus instructed his disciples. He goes on there, verse 26, to say this. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What is clear here? What's the principle? Greatness comes through serving others. Yeah, I figured you'd get that. It's clear in the text. Greatness comes through serving others. It's captured here by the term servant, slave, serve, used four times in three verses. A servant, one who served in Bible times, was the lowest level of hired help. 
That person did menial labor. And there's nothing wrong with that. It was just the lowest level of hired help. A slave, on the other hand, was even lower than a servant. He belonged to a master and did his bidding because he had been bought by him. And so by using these two positions, Jesus was emphasizing God's way to greatness. And that's being humble, ministering to others selflessly and sacrificially, even when you are treated poorly. Yeah. And so what the master was telling his disciples was completely opposite of what they saw in the world. Their greatness was about prominence. Being at the top of society with others below you. However, in God's economy, it's sort of inverted, isn't it? It sure is. It's kind of like what Lenski said in his commentary. Just listen to this. Great men are not sitting on top of lesser men, but bearing lesser men on their back. Yeah. You know, the Apostle Paul got that. He understood what it was to be a servant, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know how I know that? Because he says it in 1 Corinthians 4. He's talking about what it is to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just listen to his words, okay? Because when you read these, you might say to yourself, really? And I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus? I've got a long way to go. (laughs) This is what he said. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. Now listen to this. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Yeah, he got the picture of what a true servant of Christ was. It doesn't come with a lot of flair. It's not about ruling. No, it's about serving. Well, to get an even clearer picture of the kind of greatness to which Jesus was calling his men, he offered an example. Who? Himself. Himself. Look with me there at verse 28. This is how he ends his instruction. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see that same verse in Mark chapter 10 in verse 45. It's in both places. Turn with me, if you would, to John 13, holding your space here in Matthew 21. John 13. 
Now, I want you to understand that in John 13, it's about one week later after the instruction he gave as we read in that passage of Scripture. He's having the Last Supper with his disciples. And by the way, the disciples were squabbling again. John 13 does not record this. But Luke 21 does. And that's why Jesus goes on to instruct by way of example. John 13, 4 and 5. What did he do? Look at what it says. Speaking about Jesus, he got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now look with me down at verse 12 and following. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Amen. And so Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And by washing their feet, he was demonstrating that serving God is what? Serving others. That's what he was demonstrating. Serving God is serving others. That's greatness. And then later, in fact, hours later, he does the ultimate service. And what's that? He gave his life as a ransom for many. The Greek word there is lutron which was commonly used for the redemption price of a slave's freedom. And so Jesus gave his life as a payment price to the Father. I want you to understand that. Jesus gave his life as a payment price to the Father. Not to Satan, but to the Father. To free sinners, to free slaves of sin who trust in his work on their behalf. As I said last week, Jesus was born to die. To give his life a ransom for me. That's the ultimate act of service. Now, Jesus wasn't calling these men or us by extension to pay a ransom, right? We, we can't do that. <laughs> it's impossible. But he was calling them to follow the heart of that service. Giving oneself away sacrificially to serve others. That's genuine love. That's true greatness. In fact, look with me back at Philippians chapter 2. We had this for our scripture reading today. Philippians chapter 2. One of my favorite texts in all of scripture. Philippians 2. Beginning with verse 3. 
Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. We do that. That's automatic. But also for the interests of others. Have this attitude. What attitude? What we just read there in verses 3 and 4. Which was also in Christ Jesus. And then in the following verses, you see that very, very clearly. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearances of man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And all God's people say, Amen. Aren't you thankful for that? That act of service on our behalf? Oh my. And it's the heart of that to which Jesus is calling each one of us. Are you ready for that? When you think about being a servant of the Lord, does that come to your mind? I would tend to think no. But that's what it is. Stand to saint in his work. Behold, the king was right in saying this. These men, the disciples, were heirs to the kingdom, but were not yet prepared for authority in that kingdom. Are you prepared, beloved? Huh? Are you prepared? You belong to Jesus because He bought your freedom from sin with His blood. You're now His servants. His slaves. But it's different. You've been freed from sin. And have eternal life. Now you belong to Jesus. We should love that kind of slavery. That kind of service. It's about doing His will and pleasing Him. Bringing Him glory and honor. Not because you have to. But because you want to, right? 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore what? Glorify God in your body. You've been bought with a price. When you hear those words, and the ransom that was paid for you, oh my, Lord, I'm yours. I'm your slave. I'm your servant. I want to do your will. I want to please you. When you have captured that in your heart, you'll know true greatness. And so during this season, may the principle of serving others flood your souls. Why? Because it's the heart of Christmas. As a seven-year-old, Richard Bernstein admired Jackie Robinson's athletic ability and courage as the first African-American man to play Major League Baseball in the modern era. A few years later, while working at a small-town course, 
a golf course, Bernstein was astonished to find himself carrying the bag of his hero, Jackie Robinson. When rain postponed the game, Robinson held an umbrella over the two of them and shared his chocolate bar with the young caddy. (laughs) And so Bernstein, some years later, writing in the International Herald Tribune, cited that humble act of kindness as a mark of greatness he has never forgotten. Now let me just say this. That's just a small example. (laughs) That's just a small example of what Jesus taught in our text for today. That was with unbelievers. How much more with believers who have been bought by the price of God's blood. Greatness is not about ruling others, but serving others. What is this principle going to look like in your homes? The community. The church. Today as you walk out these doors. And as we enter the new year and live out that year. What is it going to look like? That's the question before each of you. I want you to be thinking about that through this holiday season, especially as we celebrate Christmas one week from today. Be thinking about how you want to serve your spouse, your children, other family members, the community, the church. Are you prepared to be the servant that God wants you to be? That's the question you have as you leave here today. So may God help you as you work for that, for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. And what a joy it is to just walk through this text. It's very simple. The, the teaching that Jesus offered here is not hard to understand. But I do believe that sometimes it's hard to follow in our hearts. We need to be careful of judging the disciples. Three times they had to hear this message. And they still didn't quite get it. We easily forget these kind of things. But oh God, we have a wonderful opportunity as we enter this holiday week. To be thinking about true greatness as serving others, not ruling others. And so may your will be done in our hearts for the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.